the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 23, Episode 11. Australia's Voice to Parliament Referendum. Talking with Professor Chris Wallace, University of Canberra. She joins us from her office in Canberra, Australia. Hi, Chris, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Jim. Chris, please take a moment and tell us about yourself and your work at the University of Canberra. I'm a professor of political history at the University of Canberra. I work a lot on public policy. I teach public policy. And of course, uh, this referendum falls squarely into my remit in that respect. More broadly speaking, I'm interested in political leadership. I've written several biographies. And in my first career, I was a political journalist in the Canberra Press Gallery, actually reporting on our national politicians and trying to divine what makes a good leader from a bad one, carrying that over into the academy and looking at how that affects the creation of good public policy. So you were right there in the catbird seat in Parliament and watching the give and take, Prime Minister's question time and all the rest of it. Yes, it's a pretty addictive uh, scene, Jim. I'm, I'm sure you've seen war correspondents who just can't keep going back. And it's very much the same for, for political journalists. Um, the adrenaline, the, the vital importance of the issues that draws you back again and again and again. But uh, midlife, I realised there was something more to this that needed reflecting on, some bigger conclusions that needed to be drawn. And that's when I segued to the academy and um, I hope I bring a, a kind of deeper layer to the national talk fest that we have around these big issues around national government, around the quality of democracy as it's unfolding in the 21st century. Very impressive. Australians voted in a national referendum to create a body called the Voice to Parliament. It's a body which was to advise Parliament on on matters concerning Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Tell us about the Voice to Parliament and the referendum campaign. Like many other settler colonial societies around the world, Australia has a, an Indigenous population of First Nations peoples who have, in the quality of their lives and in their, in their socioeconomic indicators, a much tougher life than people on average in Australia. How to come up with good policy that really works for, for First Nations peoples here has been an ongoing struggle over recent decades. There's a perception that current policies, current approaches aren't working, and as a result, there's been a long conversation within the Indigenous community and, and between national government and First Nations peoples about what might be done. Now, that was, in fact, started, this particular process was started by conservative governments in Australia, Republican-style, in US terms, mm -hmm. governments. And over quite a long period, it, it led to a, a meeting at Uluru, which is a very amazing geological form, formation and, and site of huge cultural significance the First Nations people, right in the centre of Australia, some way from Alice Springs. A big meeting was held in 2017 and Indigenous Australians gathered there, actually worked out in, on one page what they wanted our national government to do, and that was establish a body called The Voice that could be part of the Constitution, established in the Constitution, so that governments that came and went wouldn't abolish it. And, Jim, this is a very important point in this process. What led to that Uluru statement from the heart, as it came to be called, 
what led to that was a situation where from the 1970s onwards, whenever there were Labor Party governments in office nationally, that's the equivalent of your Democratic Party, whenever there were Labor Party governments in office, advisory bodies of First Nations people would be established to help inform the development of government policy. But when Conservative governments came in, what we call coalition governments, they're made up of the the Liberal and National Party, which is our equivalent of the Republican Party, plus a a party called the Nationals, which formerly was known as the Country Party. Mm -hmm. Those two Conservative parties in coalition, whenever they formed government, would abolish the First Nations advisory organisations set up by Labor. So this this terrible situation where when one side of politics was in office, there was an advisory body to help inform good policy development was established and, of course, getting abolished repeatedly under Conservative governments, it was kind of nuts. Mm-hmm. So the Uluru Statement of the Heart meeting of, of First Nations people asked government to enshrine in the constitution a body that couldn't be abolished by passing governments and to recognise First Nations people as the original owners of this land. So that happened in 2017. It happened under a conservative coalition government, Hmm. which then sat on it, did nothing, spun its wheels in the sand, Eventually, government changed in 2022, Mm -hmm. May 2022, the Albanese Labor government was elected. And in a very big emotional moment for the nation, Anthony Albanese's first statement when he went up on election night and acknowledged his win was, and we're going to do the Uluru statement from the heart. We're going to make it happen. So this was hugely warmly endorsed by people who voted in the Albanese Labor government. Mm -hmm. And Anthony Albanese was determined to hold this referendum and in the wake of a ter- pretty terrible night for supporters of The Voice last night, he's saying, well, Labor fulfilled its obligation to hold this referendum, the government accepts the verdict of the people and now the government has to work on ways to make reconciliation uh, meaningful, to, to close the gap between the lives of Indigenous Australians and other Australians in ways that don't include this body that was asked for at the Uluru Statement from the Heart meeting. You know, it's interesting. You you began by talking about other colonial countries like the United States or New Zealand or Canada, for instance. In the case of New Zealand, wasn't there a treaty between the European settlers and the Maoris in the mid-1800s, sort of a recognition that, that the Maori people were there first. And was there any equivalent of such a treaty in Australia? And is that a possible outcome or solution to this, to this voting down of the, vo- of the uh, voice to parliament? So First Nations people in Australia would definitely like a treaty. There's no question that that's the case. And, and they will still be hoping that government at some point deals with that very genuine and reasonable request. But you point to a really important thing here, Jim. Yes, in the 19th century in New Zealand, the Treaty of Waitangi was established. And this is where the historical specificities really matter. So New Zealand, New Zealand's First Nation people, the the Maori, had had a very different culture, a very different approach to colonisation. There was something that Settler settlers settle, settler colonialists in the 19th century recognised as a warlike posture on their front. So basically, there was a war and there was a treaty. Mm-hmm. In Australia, the nature of the conflict was very different. 
it was a guerrilla war pretty much and only recently is being recognised as such. The foundation of Australia by settler colonists has been very much based on a, a legal fiction called terra nullius. That's the legal Latin term for empty country. Mm-hmm. So Australia's colonisation was done with British settlers pretending there were no original pe- peoples, that it was, a, it was an empty country, even as they used very brutal techniques to open up the frontier and take the land from First Nations people. So that lack of a, a visible, recognised kind of war as Europeans would perceive it made it possible for those early settlers to get away with not having to make a treaty the way New Zealanders had to. Mm-hmm. So it's a very big historical difference. It's very much overdue business in Australia, to, to put it mildly. And, of course, one hopes that such a thing would happen fairly rapidly in the wake of the failure of this referendum. I think most people, however, would say the process is going to be slower rather than faster because of the referendum result. Let's move on to the actual referendum itself, because it's a two-phase process, right? You have to get a majority of votes at the national level, and then you have to get a majority of out of the six states. You have to have a majority of at least four voting in favor of the proposition. Tell us about those two hurdles that are required for a referendum to be successful. Yes, it's what's referred to as a double-double majority requirement. As you say, a majority of Australian states need to support the referendum and a majority of voters overall. Not known in America, but your constitution did influence ours. Mm -hmm. And a very high standard required to change the constitution is something that we've borrowed from you, although the details of how we do it are different. Mm -hmm. And, of course, people forget that the, the British constitution, which is where we get the rest of our constitutional mm-hmm. ideas from, they don't have a written constitution, they have conventions. So Australia very much looked to the US for an example of, of how to do it. And that idea that it should be hard to, to change the constitution has been very important in Australian political history as it's unfolded. What it's met, Jim, in practice is this. For a referendum to succeed, you've got to have bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. There has never, ever been a referendum succeed in Australia where only one side of politics supports it. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have referendums very often in Australia because people know it's a hard thing to do. But the lesson that's been forgotten here and forgotten probably the last time we had a referendum on a big issue, which was over whether Australia should be a republic. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was in 1999, also lost. It's pretty unwise It turns out everybody has had to learn all over again. It's pretty unwise to call a referendum unless you've locked in bipartisan support in the first place because you've pretty much doomed success from that moment if you don't have bipartisan support. Now, since Australia was founded as a a commonwealth in 1901, there have been 44 referenda, I guess with today's referendum, that's now 45, but only eight won. So that's that's about 18%, about an 18% success rate. What possessed the prime minister with, with that kind of a track record, with, with only eight out of 44 winning, what possessed the prime minister to think that he could buck that trend? Particularly, now, was the opposition from the get-go opposed to the voice, or did they change their position? Was there originally 
an agreement between the two parties that fell apart or not? It's a really interesting question. So going back to, to last year, one of the key First Nations leaders in, in the Yes campaign, Noel Pearson, he is in fact pretty, has a strong grasp of Australian political history and knew that bipartisan support was going to be really important. Mm-hmm. And he felt that informally there was bipartisan support. You know, he himself has been an incredibly energetic advocate for this Uluru Statement from the Heart. He personally went and lobbied many politicians, thought he had secured bipartisan agreement. But what happened in practice was one by one, conservatives started staking out conservative positions, not bipartisan positions on mm-hmm. on the voice. And very interestingly, the emergence of some First Nations Australians who are conservative politicians or, or political fellow travellers mm. emerged. And this has been a, a very unexpected element in what has happened. So the first surprise for Noel Pearson and his colleagues was that the National Party leader, that's one part of the Conservative coalition opposition mm-hmm. here, the National Party leader, David Littleproud, declared that the Nationals would oppose the voice. So that was it for bipartisanship, really. But, of course, the major figure, the major National Party political figure who emerged to lead that no voice for the Nationals was a, a First Nations Australian National Senator called Jacinta Price. Now, Senator Price is a fairly young, incredibly articulate, quite charismatic, and she has been saying things during the voice campaign which, you know, from the lips of a white conservative politician would be truly shocking. But coming from a First Nations conservative politician has really made an enormous impact on the debate, Mm. uh, including controversially her statement that colonisation has been good for Australian Indigenous people, which mm. on an historical basis, pretty hard to find the evidence to support that. But mm-hmm. she, she declared that full-bloodedly and with other conservative First Nations figures like Warren Mundine, who's not in Parliament but was very significant in the, the campaign as a First Nations man, him backing in Senator Price's statements and coming up with some of his own, like the voice is a declaration of war by First Nations people on the rest of Australia, you know, really inflammatory, over-the-top and simply wrong statements have been incredibly important and quite unexpected when the Prime Minister planned this referendum. So that was the first big shift, Mm -hmm. the bipartisan support that some Indigenous leaders thought existed in fact, didn't and broke down really quickly. Hmm. Indigenous conservative politicians became prominent in the No campaign and helped sink it. And, Jim, the third and really important, most important factor possibly of all is that no one could have foreseen that the timing of this referendum would coincide with a really tough cost-of-living crisis Mm -hmm. brought on in Australia Mm -hmm. by rising interest rates. Now, in May 2022, when incoming... Prime Minister Anthony Albanese so enthusiastically declared Labor was going to go for the voice and put it to the people. No one could have imagined for a moment that uh, this really shocking monetary policy tightening and consequential massive financial pressure on households would be impacting exactly at the time of the referendum. And, of course, when people are doing it tough, they find it harder in their hearts to be generous to others in the community. And it's very interesting when you look at how the vote fell in poorer electorates where you might have expected a bit more support, 
you know, they're some of the electorates that have been most numerically against the voice in the result, as we saw last night. It's hard for me to believe, that, well, the, the results speak for themselves, but it's hard for me to believe that the Australian people who have a reputation for being very generous, very open, have welcomed millions of immigrants to their shores, but generally a, a very welcoming and generous people, that this result doesn't seem to jibe with that popular image of Australian generosity and big-spiritedness. How do you as an Australian reconcile this result with what you know better than I to be Australia's perceived national spirit and generosity? Yeah, it's, look, it's, it's a bad moment for the nation. There's no way around it, Jim. We were all completely smashed last night in our hearts seeing these numbers roll in. It was a, a much worse loss that even the most realistic assessors were expecting with effectively 60% of the nation voting no. I live in Canberra, the Australian Capital Territory, which is like your Washington, D.C. It's mm-hmm. the capital area of the, the national parliament. We're a territory, so we don't count as a state in the double-double count but our votes carry count in the national count of a majority of voters. And we were the only place in Australia, the only state or territory to vote yes. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what's, what makes the Australian Capital Territory different from other places in Australia? Well, it has the highest average incomes and the highest average education levels of anywhere in Australia. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the thing about... Australians is, you know, a lot of people would be saying we're just an out-and-out racist nation having a look at this result. And I think there was an awful lot of racism in the campaign, much of it fanned through pretty shocking Trump-style disinformation, which is a whole other thing we've got to confront. But I think there's also a really pragmatic side to Australians. If if it's not broke, don't fix it kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And Mm -hmm. really another element in this tragic referendum loss is that the voice itself was a pretty nebulous concept to many people. Our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is a very confident person. Some people would say that shades into hubris. Mm-hmm. I think he possibly un- mis- he underestimated the degree of difficulty there was going to be in, in pulling this off. And I know for a fact, because you know I've been one of the people urging it in print, I've been arguing since January that the Prime Minister especially, but the, the Labor Party and the Yes campaign overall needed to come up with a way to come up with a short, sharp, persuasive, catchy encapsulation of what the voice was mm-hmm. and communicate it and repeat it over and over again. And in the absence of that happening, created a big canvas onto which a pretty nefarious no campaign could project the worst kind of confusion and fear on Australians' minds about what the voice was. And that was complicated too by this inherent contradiction that on the one hand the government was saying and and the Yes campaign campaigners were saying this is an incredibly important thing to do. But on the other hand, the, the argument was it's it's just symbolic, it's just advisory, it's going to be, you know, have hardly any impact at all. So a lot of people were going, well, what is it? which is true, and in the absence of actually knowing, voting no. And, of course, that was the, the killer line in the no campaigns armoury. If you don't know, vote no. Some are comparing this election and the somewhat surprising result to Brexit in 2016, where they said where the London elite and the street just were at loggerheads. And as a result, Brexit 
came into being, or the 2016 election of Donald Trump, the populist here in the United States. What are your thoughts about drawing parallels between this referendum being Australia's Brexit or being Australia's Trump moment? Yes, you could argue it's both. There's a very important distinction with both. The Brexit, both oh however, what what the, would be enough? <laughs> yeah, well, that's why we're also depressed this morning. Yes. So there's one big difference with the Brexit vote in Britain. Voting is voluntary. Yes, as it is in the US. Australia, thank God, has compulsory voting. Mm-hmm. So with Brexit, there's a the subsequent research showed that the assumption that the Brexit was going to fail caused a lot of people not to vote, and it was a kind of an accidental road crash, possibly an element in the Trump-Clinton election too. There was such an overwhelming expectation that Clinton was going to win mm-hmm. that some people didn't poll, didn't go and vote, assuming it would just happen, and, of course, that helped Trump get up. But the thing about that Trump victory was disinformation and the underperformance of the media was a really vital element in Trump's win, and this is something especially I think the Anglosphere politics polities have not confronted and come to grips with yet. How do you run decent, fair campaigns in an era of hyper-partisanship and mass disinformation? It's not as, you know, we've got to get past this point where we need to keep relearning the lesson that that's happening and come up with effective responses to it. And I think that's very much evident in this referendum result. No one really who was awake should have been surprised that the disinformation was as bad as it was. The question is, why wasn't it anticipated and dealt with in advance? And of Mm -hmm. course, one of the things you've got to do to do that is be sufficiently good at your political craft that you know not to leave room for massive disinformation campaigns to take hold. You know, you've got to get in first, define the issue, win support. And I would say, as a political historian, I would add to that, You've got to actually secure bipartisan support before you go ahead with a referendum proposal Mm -hmm. because they just don't get up if you don't have it. Now, of course, I have to ask this question. Of course, Australia is the birthplace of Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch, of course, began his journalistic career in Australia, moved to Britain, came to the United States. Did Rupert Murdoch's newspapers play any role in the No campaign or the Yes campaign, his newspapers? The Murdoch media campaigned heavily for no. They showcased leading no spokespeople and I think they even set up a, a, a kind of a subset of their Sky News operation here that was devoted totally to The Voice and knocking it down. Now, Murdoch's media is especially influential on in regional and rural areas here. A lot of it, a lot of people look at actual Sky TV's broadcast figures here and they, they see the audiences are trivial, that's not where it's important. Mm-hmm. They're continuously packaging their media and putting it out on Facebook and other online fora and it's having a huge impact on the ground in rural and regional areas and also in outer suburban areas where voters tend to be poorer and less educated, it's having an absolutely gigantic impact. And yes, Jim, we need to kind of take responsibility in Australia for the original sin of the Murdoch media. Um, Of course, Rupert looks uncannily like his mother who died at a very old age. Oh, dear. And if if he lives as long as his mother, he'll die in 2034, (laughs) which means, you know, we can't wait around for for him to shuffle off the mortal coil to get some sort of correction in his media outlets. We've got to work out now how to deal with this because otherwise the, you know, foxification of our... Polities will just get worse and worse. So we've got to kind of 
stop just watching it happen and work out how to deal with it and actually deal with it. Chris, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, how will this no vote affect Australian politics starting tomorrow? And most importantly, how will this result impact race relations? Do you expect to see a, a cooling of race relations on a one-on-one basis uh, in, the, in the shops and the schools and city streets? Uh, do, do you think this result will overflow to that or will the Australian people rise above that? Well, I think First Nations people have a total right to be not just disappointed but angry at the result. And, uh, of course, Jim, one of the things we haven't mentioned is that there was a progressive no campaign too, led by another Indigenous independent senator, uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe. She is very important in the Australian Black Sovereign Movement, which argued that you should vote no because this was a token proposal that didn't go far enough. Mm-hmm. So there's some possibility that support will uh, increase for that Black Sovereign Movement position, the, the progressive no vote position. It'll be interesting to see if that happens. In terms of race relations overall, as some Indigenous leaders like Noel Pearson said, the thing about Australians is most of them don't know an Indigenous Australian person and here lies the misunderstanding. It's not like the US. I think about 3% of the Australian population are First Nations people. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of not knowing. And I, th- I think most for most Australians, life's just going to go on. But if you're an Indigenous Australian or if you're a strong yes supporter in the wider population, you know, there's going to be a lot of heartbreak for a long time. The government, meanwhile, has to work on different avenues for for closing the gap, for trying to restart reconciliation after a bit of a pause, and also to deal with the cost of living crunch Mm -hmm. that's going down here that caused people to be less generous in their voting. It's only our electoral terms are three years here for national government. Mm -hmm. This government's halfway through its first term. And internally, inside the government, a lot of people are going to be going, wow, that wasn't well managed. If that kind of level of performance is taken to the next election campaign, Labor may well lose office or become a minority government. So I think it's going to have an effect on multiple fronts, but I think heartbreak will be the keynote for some time to come. Chris, on another note, tell us about your most recent book, on Australian prime ministers. You began by telling us about your how you began your career as a journalist in Parliament, watching prime ministers, watching leaders of the opposition in full debate and watching them emerge as leaders. Tell us about your most recent book on Australian prime ministers. It's called Political Lives, Australian Prime Ministers and Their Biographers. And I was interested in political biography as political intervention. So who wrote the campaign biographies or other biographies of Australian 20th century prime ministers in the lead up to or during their term of office. That is the books that could affect their career trajectories. So I wanted to find out who wrote them, why, what was the attitude of the politician concern, and really kind of get into that biographer subject dynamic to see what was going on. And in the case of living prime ministers and biographers, interview both sides to to get more deeply into that relationship. So, Jim, it was a bit of a, a sneaky way of writing a, a 20th century history of of Australian political history, but without packaging in that, in that way. Um, everybody loves biography, and in the case of Australia, we do a lot of forgetting of our political history. So it was a, a kind of a, a cool way of, of reviewing 20th century Australian political history and um, 
bringing a bit of light. He's a light to it in a way that's unexpected. And again, Chris, the title? Political Lives, Australian Prime Ministers and Their Biographers. And where can our listeners buy a copy of it? You can get it on any good online bookstore. It's uh, published by University of New South Wales Press. And Chris, how can our listeners follow you? I'm on Twitter at, uh, or X as it's now called, at C underscore S underscore Wallace, W-A-L-L-A-C-E. And I'm on Blue Sky at, at chriswallace.bsky.social. Very good. Once again, Chris, thank you very much for your keen insights here. Again, the marriage of both being a journalist who's actually been there in the galleries watching these politicians to then moving into the academy and presenting that knowledge to your students. I I think it's a terrific combination and a terrific combination of experience and, and marriage of practical and theoretical. Again, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights on this very important referendum that's taken place in Australia and the impact that it will have not only in Australia, but even beyond Australia. Thanks, Jim. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 457. Listen to us on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms, and join our listener base in 60 different countries. Feedspot has recently recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco.